I actually look at certain aspects of uh, the global Christianity and the uh, transformation of others. That's a larger theme that I uh, currently research on. Uh, but uh, uh, for today's uh, afternoon's discussion, I have uh, selected one particular aspect of that, uh, which is uh, how one would look at uh, the new institutional spaces uh, created by uh, missionary Christianity. So uh, I tried to uh, look at this particular problem uh, by bringing under consideration a variety of issues, one of which is the uh, debate uh, which uh, is familiar to many of us here and I'm sure that uh, it's not something very uh, strange uh, the, the problem of public sphere. So, this was one question I thought uh, I shall open up in this afternoon's discussion. And then, uh, how would we discuss uh, in the larger theoretic, in the context of the larger debates in the area of public sphere? You know, the kind of uh, uh, public spheres created by the missionaries. So I have, uh, I mean, it is not in fact my term. I tried to borrow this notion of uh, subaltern counter publics uh, to look at this. In fact, uh, my own research uh, was in certain ways, uh, Professor O'Hanlon mentioned the book which I published a couple of years ago, uh, Modernity of Slavery, which was in fact uh, a work uh, which in certain ways uh, followed the trajectories of uh, uh, subaltern studies inquiries, so broadly speaking, but I do deviate from uh, their problematic, uh, particularly when I wanted to look at uh, the question of caste slavery in Kerala. So that, in fact, uh, this research, uh, which I did uh, for a very long time, uh, one could say that that was because of my inability as well, but then I was so much into this particular question of trying to understand uh, how much slavery was in the social memory of people, you know, the former enslaved communities in Kerala, and also to see how much slavery was in the archives. So, so therefore, I did uh, combine ethnography and uh, historical research, primarily this archive-based research to uh, talk about this. So that's why it took such a long time. I'm not, I'm justifying uh, myself. Uh, so therefore, what I am doing uh, now is in fact a follow-up of that particular work which I did, uh, wherein I found uh, very strong uh, inroads made by missionary Christianity among the Dalit communities in Kerala. Now, in fact, when I uh, talked about this uh, with my friends, they said, uh, come on, this is a very big topic in India today. Uh, for a variety of reasons, we know that there is a resurgence of uh, Hindu right in India and they would want to, you know, really uh, look at this from a very, very different kind of uh, perspective. Uh, so having said this, this is a, uh, in certain ways uh, a problem which is uh, uh, talked today in India. Uh, and I always think that uh, for wrong reasons because you don't find thousands of people uh, becoming Christians today. Whereas in the 19th century that I am talking about, you will find uh, you know, the uh, numbers of Christians swelling like thousands actually. So we have a very different kind of uh, political uh, context, social context as well as political economic context that created this. Uh, 
so uh, this uh, takes me to the question of uh, which I have termed as uh, uh, subaltern public sphere. What does it mean to uh, talk about uh, this subaltern public sphere? So <coughs> this particular essay, which is familiar to most of uh, most of us, uh, authored by uh, Nancy Fraser, where she talks about uh, the question of societies which are uh, in a certain way is organized on the basis of uh, dominance and subordination. So I, I guess uh, the, this particular pairing of domination and subordination or dominance and subor uh, subordination was very central to the kind of inquiries which I did earlier. Uh, because I was trying to look at how uh, the upper caste had a control over the lower caste slaves to the extent that uh, they could buy them, they could sell them. And there was a, a market for uh, slaves uh, that flourished in Kerala for a very long time. But in fact, not so many historians have written about it, although I'm not saying that I'm the only person who has written about it. There, are, there were a few uh, before me who tried to examine this question. But uh, what I wanted to look at was to see how this question of dominance and subordination uh, got articulated in this web of social relations. Now, in the 19th century, uh, because for want of time I will not go into all the details, we may take it up uh, towards the end of it, because I would, uh, I would, want, I would limit my talk to uh, less than 35 minutes. Uh, so this question of dominance and subordination uh, actually created uh, situations where uh, frequent interaction between social groups were impossible or in the, let's say in the uh, pre-colonial times, there was no way uh, people could come together. Uh, ex I mean, if you look at the uh, Dalit communities, uh, I'm referring mostly to the Kerala I mean, examples. Uh, they <coughs> uh, demographically more numerous communities uh, that were enslaved were uh, the Pulayas and Parayas and then you have uh, smaller communities, uh, relatively smaller communities like the Kuravas uh, who renamed themselves as Siddhinar in the 20th century in the context of the social movements and you find uh, uh, very many smaller uh, communities across the state, across the uh, state of uh, Kerala. Uh, so historically, that sort of uh, political unit was not there. Uh, it was all divided into native states, and the northern part of Kerala was part of uh, British um, Madras Presidency. Uh, so uh, what I'm trying to show uh, is the social profile of different social groups. I mean, uh, so uh, how the subordinated groups were enslaved and then you have the landlord classes, these are the dominant ones. Now if you want to look at uh, a certain kind of uh, public sphere emerging in the colonial period uh, due to colonial education and other kinds of things or administrative changes etc etc. So we need also to look at what has been happening to these uh, different kinds of people. So this is what I uh, do in the first part. So then I argue that, uh, I mean I here uh, draw on the writings of uh, uh, philosopher Charles Taylor uh, who suggested that in case if you want to look at uh, how ideas have been articulated in the 
public sphere, I mean that public sphere, the nature of it could be uh, different. Uh, we also need to look at how uh, in certain ways uh, what he referred to as a new social imaginary becomes available. Now I draw this uh, to suggest that uh, when the missionaries came, I mean two major missionary organizations that worked in the uh, southern part of Kerala that I am referring to. One is Church Missionary Society, so which had its headquarters in London, and the other one is uh, London Missionary Society. Both of them uh, are part of the Anglican uh, uh, Anglican Church, Church of England. And uh, these missionaries from the uh, early 19th century, they came, and I mean, it was uh, in 1815 that the first batch of the missionaries came. And subsequently, we find uh, a lot of them coming, but uh, their numbers were not very many. But uh, so they had a very uh, interesting uh, kind of uh, historical interaction with the local communities. Uh, I'm not going into the histories of that, but I just signpost one thing. Uh, it, so, I mean, this is an example that would be familiar to many of those uh, who do South Asian religion. Uh, that Christianity uh, definitely had a very long presence in, uh, in the Kerala coast because of the historical trade relations with West Asia. So obviously, you find uh, you know, uh, Christians on the western coast of India, which is uh, some scholars would argue that which is either as old as or older than the European Christianity. But it's a different variant of it, which uh, intellectually and liturgically, etc., would trace its history to that of the Eastern tradition. So, they used to get their prelates from Antioch. So that's the sort of history. And now when the, the uh, early 19th century, uh, quickly that history, because this is important to just have an idea of that. Uh, the famous uh, British chaplain of East India Company based in Kolkata, uh, Claudius Buchanan, who traveled through uh, the, uh, I mean, from the north down to South Kerala and then he goes to Karnataka and all that. He has written fabulously about it. And uh, many of his uh, original materials, uh, I mean, I guess most of which is kept in the uh, library of Cambridge University where you can actually access these materials to look at. And he had uh, done a lot of research on uh, Christianity in the southwestern part of India. And uh, so he suggested to the British resident in Trivandrum, uh, the Travancore native state, uh, based in Trivandrum, that it's important that uh, the company does something uh, to, I mean, uh, which in fact gets uh, got complicated with the attitude of the company whether they should allow the uh, missionaries to come and so on. So anyway, there were revisions of the Charter Act later on and uh, which allowed the missionaries to come. And those who came, uh, I mean, uh, during the period of uh, Colonel Munro, so they thought that the, here is a uh, society where there is a community of ancient Christians and why we shouldn't work with them. So that's when the whole idea of reforming the traditional Orthodox Church uh, took, uh, took place. So therefore, from 1815 to 1836, you find the phase when uh, the missionaries were working along with the traditional Christians. And from 1836 onwards, uh, I mean, in 1836, there was a fallout. I mean, uh, so they, they fell apart. There was a departure 
there was a resentment, there was a total departure of the kind of uh, connections between the uh, traditional Christians and the missionaries. And then subsequently, uh, they started uh, working among the slave class. This happened unknowingly, but here we are. Uh, so, uh, in fact, when uh, if you have seen the sort of uh, uh, handout which uh, Max Me made for the, the talk, so he has given. I was I, I was really fascinated by that. He uh, took the picture of one of the oldest churches in Cotton, which we call as valuable, the Great Church, uh, which I guess was uh, constructed in uh, 1555 and which is a highly ornamented Eastern uh, type of church which has a lot of murals. Uh, those murals were done using the uh, paint uh, processed out of vegetables and so on, vegetables and fruits. And that's a big uh, tourist attraction. So uh, if you have seen that uh, handout which was circulated, and look at this, this is the church which these uh, missionaries had established. And this is uh, this, uh, this uh, small thatch is uh, larger than life size of the huts in, uh, huts in which the Polias and Parias would live. And this is uh, on the, uh, this particular church is on the backwaters actually. So if you, you can see the coconut and so on. So this, uh, back, I mean this particular land have been actually uh, uh, reclaimed by, I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, most of those uh, economists and political economists who wrote on uh, this particular aspect of raising uh, rice fields from the bed of the backwaters. Uh, have used the word like uh, reclamation, so therefore I also use that. So th this is a reclaimed land or it's uh, you know something which was created out of sand and they bring in this uh, uh, soil from the bed of the backwaters and they raise it and these churches were made uh, like that. So, uh, so you find this is one particular space and you have again uh, churches in the, at that point of time, they, uh, the missionaries would refer to them as churches in the jungles. And these are not forests because uh, this would be the uh, huge extent of the uh, estates of the landlords bordering uh, the uh, uh, jungles and the untouchable slaves are to, uh, were made to live there, they had their huts, etc. And then the missionaries would establish their, uh, you know, the churches of this kind there. And in fact, uh, this sort of uh, churches existed for a very long time. Now, what I'm suggesting is that, so these uh, quickly, uh, for a hundred of time, I, what I'm suggesting is that what happens to these spaces? This is a question I'm uh, taking up. Uh, or else, can we talk about this as a certain kind of public space which was emerging? Because remember the fact that uh, until the coming of the missionaries, uh, so, in the local society, so these slaves were never allowed to come together for anything except the usual work in the landlord's uh, fields. And now, uh, this actually the first uh, slave school was set up before the abolition of slavery in 1855. Uh, so, what I am suggesting is, uh, these uh, you know, uh, spaces became, I have argued elsewhere that the spaces uh, of modernity. So one could say that it is uh, far-fetching, but uh, in terms of the ideas that were discussed, now it is here that uh, they started reading uh, the portions of the script, uh, scriptures, or in fact, I just uh, came across a very uh, interesting kind of materials. For instance, the 
1839, uh, we have the first uh, translation of the Beatitude, the Sermon on the Mount in Malayalam. So it was done by a British missionary. Uh, he is popularly known as Harley Sahib, you know, the Harley Sahib or uh, Reverend Harley. So he was the one who translated it. And uh, a few years ago, uh, Old Testament was translated uh, by Benjamin Bailey. He was a British missionary. And in 1841, we have the uh, translation of the New Testament. Uh, so before that, uh, portions of the scriptures were translated. So what I am suggesting is that if we uh, understand uh, the public space as a uh, space where, uh, you know, ideas could be discussed, certain forms of associations are made possible. Then one could say that this particular sort of churches function something like a, a public space, uh, which in fact was not a public space where other people would want to come. So therefore, it is uh, I mean, uh, because it's the space of the ancestral communities, and because uh, even as they became Christians, you know, the untouchability doesn't go away. So therefore, uh, this uh, remained as a marginal space. In fact, if, you, if when we look at the uh, critical writings of uh, uh, Nancy Fraser and many others who joined the debate uh, along with, uh, along with uh, Habermas in understanding this question of uh, uh, the uh, public space. Uh, we find certain scholars arguing that it is possible in a society which uh, is driven by the questions of dominance and subordination, we could think of alternative space. and. Uh, as a student of history or someone who does social sciences, when I look at the 19th century Kerala, probably this is one space that could be uh, thought of as uh, as a Balkan space. And now quickly, uh, so you know, uh, what they would do there, so the evening after the work in the landlord's field, they come there and uh, they have their uh, usual kind of uh, prayers, etc. And then uh, someone will uh, read the scriptures. This is a thing which uh, used to happen. Now, uh, so there is a certain kind of uh, community uh, being generated. One can talk about, you know, I just, uh, elsewhere I use the word like community of emotions because I also look at as part of this my research on global Christianity. I'm looking at the emotional transformation also, but I'm not bringing in that because there is a new way in which uh, people could talk about emotions. For example, you know, uh, what are the kind of narratives about oppression? What are the kind of narratives about the uh, sale of slaves, uh, purchase of slaves, separation of families and so on? So I uh, wrote about it, but not uh, when I did this in my book, I was not looking at uh, uh, exclusively from the perspective of the history of emotions, history of mentalities. So, uh, in this particular research that I am engaged in, I bring in this and I'm see, I see that these are spaces when you know you find a new emotional beings being uh, thought about, I mean a new emotional uh, aspects being uh, talked about. So this, uh, I, I guess I need uh, Priya's help, yes thank you. Uh, so this will take me to uh, one particular aspect of which is uh, the uh, prayers. What was really? Uh, so here is this, uh, this is a very interesting kind of uh, story of uh, uh, Patros is a Malayalam uh, rendition of uh, Peter. Uh, so he is this uh, bearded elderly person is uh, re reverentially referred to as 
Patros Velipe, Velipe means grandfather. Let's say Peter's dad. At it to translate it. But anyway, he is uh, referred to in his community as Patros Velipe very reverentially. And uh, he was uh, a slave himself. Uh, so this, I, this picture is taken from one of the missionary uh, journals which talks about uh, the history of this particular individual, how he liberated himself and how he became instrumental in uh, liberating the village where he lived, the village in the sense that the village of the untouchables over there. So he has, I mean, uh, the long and short of the story is that he along with uh, three of his uh, friends who would be chained to a, the root of a tree in, uh, in one night, uh, you know, I mean, this used to be the practice after work, they would be chained to the tree. So they uh, actually, the, uh, the uh, social memory of the community is that he would be chained to the roots of a tree and uh, what, there, there will be some fire. Uh, the fire is for protection so that animals won't come and, you know, eat them away. So this is it. Uh, so what they would do, they would uh, take this uh, uh, fire, burning uh, wood and burn up these uh, roots, uh, roots of the tree to which they were chained and they would cover it with dead leaves. And they did it for many days and uh, at one night they escaped. And from there they went to uh, several miles away, I guess it should be not less than 40 miles away, uh, walked through the forest and they reached the missionary outpost of uh, Henry Baker Jr and uh, stayed with him for a while in uh, not less than three years and they learned uh, uh, scriptures and they were baptized and then they came back and uh, so in the local community uh, this is uh, this story is recalled in a very very emotional way so what i am what is significant here is i don't have time to go into all the details if you look at the picture you will see that uh, he is lying down. So this is in front of the church uh, which he was instrumental in uh, developing. And then he said, this is, uh, this is in fact a picture showing his last moments. Uh, he is awaiting his death and he has asked people to, of his community, his beloved people to come and you know, pray for him. So he is holding uh, some uh, prayer book. I guess, and uh, so, uh, so this uh, narrative which is doing its round in the village, which is part of the social memory is exactly the kind of uh, thing this which uh, the missionary printed and circulated. So the significance of it is that uh, the prayer becomes a language of deliberation. This is what I wanted to say. And it is very, very important in the sense that uh, when I look at, uh, for instance, the translation of the Book of Common Prayers, and of course, uh, I mean, uh, Book of Common Prayers is something which is uh, not uh, an artifact of theologians or an artifact of historians alone. We find um, scholars in uh, literature or English literature talking about this as a very significant text. And uh, when I looked at very recently uh, the translation of this and also the kind of things that have come out of the Book of Common Press, I was very much uh, uh, surprised to see that in Malayalam when it was circulated, there was a particular prayer like uh, it is the Malayalam it is uh, put it as Velakar in the Prathana, which means the prayer of a worker. I do not know if it's in the original book of common prayers. This particular prayer is there, but uh, what happens is that you find uh, an absolutely local rendering of this uh, high Anglican uh, prayer and getting translated in very many different ways 
and it actually works along with certain kind of uh, emotional history. And if you look at this, uh, since I do not have much time to go into that, uh, otherwise I would have spent some time, uh, you know, really explaining this. Uh, so what I am suggesting is that uh, you know this prayer becomes very very significant in the sense that uh, these prayer meetings, as I have uh, uh, had occasions to read about this in the missionary uh, archive, and uh, they talk about you know people coming together in the dead of the night because uh, uh, they are not allowed to otherwise come together, as I said, except for working in landlord's field. So you find them coming together after the work and uh, spending uh, some time together and they uh, on many occasions they will have their lamps lit uh, but on uh, several other occasions i have read i have come across evidences that suggest that because landlords were in the lookout of the <coughs> gospel workers uh, the people feared that you know the landlords men will come and uh, you know, then uh, they would beat up those who have come to pray and therefore they will uh, uh, they will <coughs> have their prayer in darkness and go away. So there are a lot of similar narratives as late as, let's say, 1910. So it has been re uh, reported like that. But on other occasions, this is quite interesting in the sense that uh, many of those who come for these uh, prayers, prayers, they would never have the possibility of using lanterns or even a, an ordinary lamp in their homes because or the oil is very expensive and uh, most of the time they would uh, live in darkness and therefore if you look at the narratives of the missionaries you will see that uh, the uh, highly charged metaphor like light and darkness so uh, this is something which you will see if you read the uh, current anthropology of Christianity what I mean the sort of researchers that are taking place in among Christian communities across the globe, you will see that there is a really significant uh, uh, play of these metaphors. And uh, so here in the, the context of Kerala, what I am suggesting is that because they were never allowed to have lamp, so the, the metaphor of light becomes uh, very, very significant. And now this metaphor uh, is used to describe a new uh, community, a new, you know, uh, uh, subaltern public sphere uh, coming up. So now quickly to the uh, significance of prayer, I just show one uh, small uh, video which we made. Can we show that? Uh, so which will show the significance of prayers in the local community. So this is about the significance of local rendering of this, uh, you know, prayer and prayer practice. So, uh, so I'm at the uh, final stage. In two minutes, I will conclude. So what I suggest is that, uh, you know, the whole question of basic rights of man, that's what, uh, you know, if you follow the uh, debates in this uh, public sphere, that's what is being articulated. But here in these instances, we find absolutely great translation of many of these concepts and ideas that became uh, part of, uh, uh, I mean, in terms of uh, uh, circulating ideas and creating communities, uh, the felt communities in that sense. We find this sort of interventions of the missionaries creating a different kind of, uh, uh, you know, subaltern public. So the, I have done, I mean, I have written about the literary public sphere of the dominant groups, etc. So I am not going into all those details.